All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I was not here last week, but I heard amazing things about Nathan's preaching, and I could not be more thankful for how God has established a preaching team here at Redeemer Fellowship, men who love Jesus and who are eager to proclaim the gospel of Christ on a weekly basis. What a blessing it is. This morning, let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, we have probably all either seen videos of or painfully witnessed ourselves cringe-worthy sermons about sexual intimacy within marriage. That makes for a very awkward Sunday morning, doesn't it? But my friends, my goal this morning is to have zero cringe-worthy moments as we talk about conjugal rights and intimacy within marriage. Now, God's Word speaks about our sexuality a lot. And so with God's word as our guide and our authority in life, it is right and good for us to talk about it as a church family, even here on Sunday mornings. But how we do this matters. Our sexuality is a holy thing before God, and so we should talk about it with respect and with care. Our our goal is not to speak in a scandalous way. We're we're not interested in clickbait phrases that will gain lots of attention and curiosity. Faithful pastoring, faithful preaching does not come through clickbait sermons. No, we are called by God to pastor the church well through speaking his word with care and with godly intentionality. But at the same time, Our responsibility is also to speak about these things with great joy. Our sexuality is a gift from God, and God has wisely given us clear and wise instructions about this gift, and so we shouldn't be bashful or or prudish about the topic. Sex within marriage is a gift to us from God, not just for pragmatic reasons, but for our joy and our delight and our good pleasure. And the church has a responsibility to paint a very happy picture for all of God's people about what God intends for our sexuality to be. And that actually leads us to our main idea here this morning. Our main idea is simply this. Sex within marriage is a happy gift from God that should be greatly enjoyed by his people. Sex within marriage is a happy gift from God that should be greatly enjoyed by his people. All right, and we have four points this morning. Point number one sad mistakes and we can see that in verse one point number two happy realities we're going to see that in verse two point number three mutual authority that's going to be in verses three to four and then finally point number four joyful pursuit we're going to see that in verses five to six let's begin by looking at our first point point number one sad mistakes 
Why is Paul talking about marital intimacy at this point in this letter? Why does he bring this up now? There's so many other issues that the Corinthians have to deal with. Why does he address it at this point? And, and why does he deal with it so publicly? Isn't this a matter that a husband and wife should deal with in private before the Lord? Is it really a church matter? Well, friends, Paul talks about this here because our understanding of our sexuality and the, the gift of sex within marriage has a massive impact on our individual lives and even upon the health and holiness of the local church. See, in the context, it's very clear that the Corinthians have a lot of questions about what it means to be Christian men and women, and specifically in our text today, what it means to have a Christian, to have a biblical sex ethic. What does God's Word say about these things? In verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then notice the quotation marks, these are their words, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so what's happening here is is that Paul continues, as he already has been, to address questions that the Corinthians had written to him about. So, So Paul planted this local church. He spent about three years with this local church, discipling them, and then he moved on to plant other local churches. They they had accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, but when Paul left, because of their spiritual immaturity and lack of discernment, they had begun to stumble through many things, many ideas about what was godly and what was not. Paul, Paul has already talked to us about their wrongful acceptance of sexual immorality. Some of the Corinthian Christians had begun to think of themselves as super Christians and that they were in some way like Teflon Christians, immune to the effects of sin, so so they were not living pure lives. You have men sleeping with their stepmoms. You have people going into prostitutes. You have sexual immorality of many different kinds within this local church, and it's not a good situation. Sexual immorality is most certainly an issue. But as we saw three weeks ago, Sexual immorality was not the only way that the Corinthians had made mistakes about their bodies and about their sexuality. Some of them did have wrong thinkings and they were being careless with their bodies, but others had likely gone to the other extreme. And we can see this in the quote, verse 1, when it says, their words, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, commentators think that this is just a reference to sexual immorality outside of marriage, such as those that we've already discussed. But it seems to be more than that here. Because because of how Paul goes on to talk about the issues of husbands and wives depriving one another. That there were apparently men and women who who had such a low view of their physical bodies and such a low view of their sexuality that they had demonized the very idea of sex even within marriage. They, They had begun to believe that all forms of sexual activity were wrong. And so even spouses should avoid sexual intimacy and pleasure. Except perhaps for the pragmatic purpose of procreation. Sex was okay for making babies, but pleasure beyond that was not good. There might have even been, as was common in that day, a perspective that sex within marriage was just for procreation, but if you wanted to have fun, if you wanted to find satisfaction, you should look outside the marriage beyond your spouse to someone else. That seems to be a prevalent experience in that day, and it might have been creeping into the local church as well. So, so either people were, were demonizing sex altogether and saying it's always bad, or they were saying that finding pleasure in sex shouldn't happen within the marriage covenant, that it should happen from outside. 
But Paul speaks against it all. Paul gives strong directive about husbands and wives not depriving one another of sexual intimacy. And there's no statement in our text today about how that intimacy is for procreation or for practical purposes alone. Paul seems to be saying that it is good for husbands and wives to enjoy sex, not, not just for babies, but for joyful satisfaction and delight with each other. Paul wants them to know that these wrong convictions about sex are a sad mistake in their lives. This is not how God has called them to live. God has a far better, a far more beautiful, a far happier design for husbands and for wives. And this is so important because a biblical understanding of our sexuality leads to healthy and happy marriages. Marriages are are such a huge part of God's design and purpose for the local church itself. God says that marriage is actually a picture of his love for the church. And that's not to say that God in any way relates to us in a sexual or sensual way at all. But rather, that the, the love and the nearness and the selflessness that is involved in marital intimacy is a reflection of God's great love and service for his people. And so we should pay very close attention to what Paul says here. And this is important because I think that too many in the church love to pay very close attention to the do nots of Scripture. Let's talk a lot about sexual immorality and how, our, how dangerous our culture is. Many, many Christians love to talk about the bad and they might like to make lists of things that Christians should not do and that they need to avoid rather than allowing our joyful and happy and generous God to speak to us in his word and to paint a far better picture of what we can and we should enjoy together by his grace. Christianity is not a religion of needless asceticism where it's just no, no, no. Jesus was not an ascetic teacher. No, he had a physical body and he celebrated this physical world and so so should we as his people. Having a biblical vision for sexual intimacy will not steal joy from you. It will fuel joy in your life and in your marriage in particular. That leads us to our second point. Point number one was sad mistakes, and now point number two, happy realities. Look at verse two. It says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, as we first read that, we might think that Paul actually has a very low view of marriage and of sexual intimacy within marriage. We can almost think that he views it in an entirely pragmatic way, that, that sexual intimacy is only a practical thing to keep us away from temptation or from other deviant forms of sex. So some people might read this and think that Paul is basically saying, okay, Corinthians, I understand you're, you're sexual beings, you have sexual cravings, but, but if you just keep your sex within the boundaries of your bedroom and with your spouse, then you won't be tempted to go out and to do more dangerous things. That, that might seem like what Paul is saying here. But, but the reality is that the picture of what Paul says here connects to a much, much bigger biblical perspective. In this text, he he gives the reason for intimacy within marriage as being practical because of the temptation towards sexual immorality. And it might sound like that's his entire perspective on the matter, but it's not. That is not all that God's word says about sexual intimacy. 
and pleasure. I, I agree with Slage in his commentary when he says we must avoid the misconception that 1 Corinthians 7 provides something like a complete Pauline teaching concerning marriage. We must avoid that inclination. It's not a complete teaching. This text is addressing a very specific situation in Corinth and does not capture all that Paul says about the gift of intimacy in marriage, nor does it capture even close to what all the other biblical authors say about it, nor what God himself says about it. And friends, we know that because marital intimacy between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage is loudly, boldly celebrated in our Bibles. Not just because it leads to procreation and to more children, not because it might help us to resist temptation, but because of the extraordinary and beautiful and happy blessing it is from God our Father. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's speaking about sexual intimacy. And he says this mystery is profound. Even if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the Garden of Eden before sin came into the world, it says that the man and the woman were naked together and were not ashamed, indicating the, the goodness of their sexuality even before God. The book of Ecclesiastes suggests that we should enjoy life with our husband or wife. Hebrews, which is all about the glory and the supremacy of Christ in the New Testament, ends in chapter 13 by saying, let marriage and let the marriage be, be held in honor among all. God says in the book of Proverbs, which is a book entirely about right living before God, he says things like, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Folks, there is zero prudish sense about our sexuality in the Bible. This is not a limitation of sexual pleasure. It is a promotion of it. God does not say, enjoy sex with the wife of your youth when it's necessary to have kids. No, he says, at all times. He doesn't say do it, but do it with only as a sense of duty without any personal pleasure. No, he says enjoy the physical experience and be intoxicated by this love. He, he speaks of delight. And then there's the book of Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon will make some of us blush if we read it. Song of Solomon is not, as some old commentators suggest, a book about God's love for the church. That's just weird and creepy. Don't think that. The Song of Solomon is a whole book in our Bibles written by God himself through Solomon about the joy and the delight of godly sex within marriage. In the Song of Solomon, the, the bride says things like, on my bed at night I sought him whom my soul loves. The groom says things like, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And then, and then he describes the bride's body in detail. It, it shows how obsessed he is with the beauty of his wife, how he has no eyes for anyone but her. He says things like, you are altogether beautiful, my bride. There is no flaw in you. And the bride does the same thing. She says things like, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. And she describes his body in great detail as well. The bride says things like, 
I had put off my garments. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart thrilled within me. Friends, if you are ever tempted to think of God as a stick in the mud or as a bad sport or as someone who does not like his people to enjoy this life or to feel good things, open your Bible again and learn afresh that your God is a joyful God and he gives good gifts to his people. This is the happy reality of our Bibles. Paul, Paul knows this. He, he may not explain all of it fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because he's addressing a, a specific issue, but he's not speaking only of, of, of sex in a pragmatic way, almost as if a necessary evil within marriage. And we know that he's not doing that because he goes on in verse 5 to instruct husbands and wives not to deprive one another. If sex was just to be a duty that we endured or just did out of as a chore and not a pleasure, Paul would not have used language of deprivation. To deprive each other means that there's something that we want and desire and enjoy. I hate cooked carrots, like a lot. They might have the worst texture out of any food in the world. Maybe, maybe peas are up there as well. Cooked carrots are the worst. And I am not going to say if you come up and take cooked carrots off my plate that you have deprived me. I'm going to say thank you for having relieved me of that unwanted burden. But if I have a slice of Cacciatore's pizza on my plate and you come and take that away from me, then I'm going to say that you've deprived me of something that I want. The, the, the way that Paul speaks about Marital intimacy here is more like a delicious morsel of food to be enjoyed and savored than an unwanted and poorly cooked plate of vegetables. It's something that is supposed to be painful to us when we are unable to enjoy it. Now, even as I say that, I am aware that, that sexual intimacy is, is not a happy reality in many of our lives. First of all, if, if you are not married this is a gift that God has not yet given to you to enjoy. And Paul will go on to talk about the beauty and the power and the goodness of living a single life before God for his glory. Our culture today idolizes sex and makes us feel like we are lesser people if we are not able to enjoy the gift of sex. But that is not what God's word says. God's word says that it is a gift, but it does not make us who we are. And so if you are living an abstinent life for the glory of God, there are many happy realities in your life as well. And Paul is going to speak in detail about them as we continue through this letter. And I'm also aware that sexual intimacy is not a happy reality for even many married couples. Sometimes because of sin. Sometimes because of physical limitations, sometimes because of pride, sometimes because of a failure to rightly celebrate this gift over many years, sometimes because of years of misunderstanding, sexual intimacy in marriage is a deeply painful topic to consider. And friend, if that is you, I want you to know that God sees you in your pain, he sees you in your heart, he sees you in your disappointment, he sees you and your husband or you and your wife in that struggle, and he desires to help you. Prioritizing intimacy as a couple can come with many, many challenges, but it is something that God desires to minister to us in. Even with the many challenges that come with it, sexual intimacy within marriage is one of the primary ways that God has called us to care for our spouses, to love them well, and to care for ourselves as well. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, mutual authority. 
Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So, so Paul, in the context of needing to address needless abstinence within marriage and perhaps needing to address immoral indulgences outside of marriage, Paul spends time here talking about the, the mutual responsibilities and mutual belonging that exists between a husband and a wife within marriage. The, the term conjugal rights here, the, the word rights is equivalent to duty, or it is actually a, a contractual term. It's used, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament for contractual language where, where debts are owed between two people. So Paul's explicitly stating that in a mutual way, the husband and the wife are contracted together and have rights over each other. There's an authority going both directions. It speaks of actually owning each other's bodies. Now, friends, we have to be very sensitive as we talk about this. In our day, we do not like to talk about having authority over each other's bodies, particularly when so many men have used a text like this to, and to use their Bibles to make their wife just have more sex with them when they wanted it. Many men have wielded 1 Corinthians 7 specifically to their selfish advantage and abuse in the bedroom. And so we have to be very careful how we talk about this so that we don't just play into wrongful uses and abuses of this text within unhealthy marriage relationships. We have to notice some really, really significant things about this text. Folks, we have to notice how unbelievably countercultural this was and is. Listen, Paul does not start by saying that the wife should give to her husband his conjugal rights. That would have been very common in that day. That was very common in our day. Women were and are expected to serve their husbands whenever and however they want. That, that would have been, that is the norm. But that is not where Paul starts. He starts with the husband giving to his wife her conjugal rights. Listen, men in that day in the city of Corinth, when they read that for the first time, they would have been, what is that? That's got to be a typo. Paul didn't mean that. He meant to say that she's there for me and for what I want. I'm not there for her. That's what they would have thought. Friends, this is not a typo. Paul meant to write this, and this is foundational for a healthy marriage and for a healthy sex life within marriage. Mutual care. Mutual responsibility, mutual belonging. And I, I love this about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I, I think that many people, many people who would push back against the idea of biblical complementarianism, those who push back against the idea that there are God-given roles between men and women that should be seen both in the church and within the home. Those that would push back against that complementarian perspective likely would assume that this chapter is going to talk only about the wives needing to submit to their husbands and how the husbands have authority over their wives and just leave it there. That's often what is assumed. But what I love about this chapter is that even while Paul clearly holds to biblical complementarianism and writes about it extensively, what he describes here is not the heavy-handed authority and blind and weak submission that so many people think of and fear. No, within a godly, within a biblical marriage where there are God-given roles, there is still mutual care, mutual respect, mutual pursuit of each other, and even a mutual type of authority. 
Even though 1 Corinthians 7 is not promoting an egalitarian view of men and women's roles in the church, in the home, where they are exactly the same, we don't see that as a biblical perspective. Even though this text is not promoting that, it is still so beautiful because it shows the heart of God for men and women. It celebrates our our mutual value before God. If you read the rest of this chapter, as we will in the coming weeks, anything that it says about the husband it also says about the wife. And anything it says about the wife, it also says about the husband. And I love the balance of that. That would have been so countercultural in that day. But friends, this is what Christianity is all about when it comes to men and women. Far, far, far from the perspective that Christianity subjugates women to the power and selfish desires of men, God's word reveals a far greater respect for women than our culture does. We saw this in Jesus when we studied the book of Mark. He loved women. He honored women. He promoted women. We saw it in 1 Peter. We saw it as we studied the book of Genesis, and we see it even here. Listen, anyone... Anyone who uses Christianity to lessen the value and worth and honor of women is doing exegetical tearing to the text. They're not using a right interpretation of their Bibles. Your Bible is emphatically pro-woman. That's the fact. And anybody who argues against it or uses God's word to say anything different is not following this text as it should be read. And in the context of these verses, what that means, what that means is that we need to stop talking about sexual intimacy within marriage as primarily something the husband needs and that the wife should just get on board with. But Paul does not write all of this just for the sexual release of a husband that, who needs, needs what he has passions for. Paul, as a, as a single man here, reveals greater wisdom than many Christian husbands have today. Husbands, listen, sex within marriage is not just God's good gift to you, nor is it just a safeguard against your sexual sin. It is also a good gift for your wife, and it is also a safeguard against her sexual sin and temptation. And at first, at first, maybe we as husbands don't mind that idea because, hey, if they want and need it, we're more than happy to provide it for them. But brothers, what if your wife's conjugal rights look a little bit different than your conjugal rights? What if it's more than just the act of intercourse itself? What if it's also about relationships? What what if even as we see in the book of Song of Solomon, the beauty of marital intimacy is not just in the act of intercourse, but in the relationship and in the personal knowledge and love and intentional care and spiritual union of the other person to yourself? Guys, what if our wives use this text in the same way that many husbands have to their wives? What if wives began to ask and expect their husbands to give to them their conjugal rights, not just through a quick act, but through the, the act in the way that they desired? What, what if men, what if men who, who honestly think that depriving their wives is the last thing that they could ever be accused of because they're more than happy to oblige, what if men need to realize that they have actually been depriving their wives for many years because they have not touched their mind and their heart before they've touched their bodies? If we have authority over each other's bodies as spouses, as Paul so clearly says here, that means that we have right expectations from each other and should ask of them from each other. And husbands can't just say, well, the act is done and so let's move on. We've fulfilled our obligation. Friends, it could go both ways too. 
One, one of the things that's very clear is that we often talk about the difference between men and women in, in too simple of a way. Often we speak of the, the, the big needs of men and how they're visually oriented and, and while, all the while we indirectly speak of women's needs as less. But, but studies really don't show that that is as, as clearly defined as that. There, there are needs and desires and expectations on both sides. And so, so there are, it goes in both directions. And there are many applications here for wives as well. Sadly, the, the culture has created a picture of us men that we are little more than animals with our sexual appetites. And so wives feel this duty to, to service their husbands. And so they oftentimes just resign themselves to making themselves available for the sexual needs of their husbands, particularly when they have been told by the church so many times that their purity depends on their availability, which is a very bad road to go down. But ladies, intimacy is much more than that for your husband. Relationship matters for us as well. We, we don't want to be serviced like a car needing an oil change every couple of days. No, we love to be delighted in and cherished and pursued as well. And Paul seems to be saying here that wives also have a responsibility to give to their husbands, not just their bodies, but their hearts and their ambitions as well. The idea that Paul is speaking of here is that there is mutual care and love that is to be offered between husbands and wives, a, a selflessness and a care for each other. And friends, here's where I want to preach the gospel to you this morning. Marriage is such a beautiful picture of the gospel because it reminds us of how God himself did not use his power and position to his own advantage, did he? But he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was gentle and lowly. He came to be a servant to all those around him. And he didn't have to. He could have come as a king. He could have come on a chariot demanding all that he deserved along the way. But he didn't. He came as a lowly servant. And how beautiful that he did that. Because it was in his service, it was in his gentleness, it was in his lowliness that our greatest needs were met. It was his gentleness and his service and his humility that won our hearts back to him. He did not come to earth only as a means of getting what he wanted for himself. No, he came in his great love to create and to celebrate and to cultivate a beautiful relationship with his people. And so husbands are now called by God to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And one of the primary ways that we do that is not by abdicating our leadership to their wives, but by loving and serving our wives with our whole beings and with our leadership, even within the bedroom. Not just by taking what we want, but by loving and serving and gently caring for the needs and the desires of the wife that God has given to us. By coming to our wives, not just to get something for ourselves, but to make it our constant ambition to create and to celebrate and to cultivate a beautiful and vibrant relationship with our bride. And women are called by God to honor and to respect their husbands, not, not just by servicing them as a duty, but by honoring them, delighting in them, pursuing them. This sort of mutual love, this sort of mutual care, mutual belonging, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel that we celebrate this morning. Brings us to our fourth point, point number four, joyful pursuit. The point of what Paul is saying here, the, the, the beautiful picture that he is painting is one of joyful celebration and of joyful pursuit of marital intimacy. 
A biblical marriage is marked by a husband and a wife joyfully pursuing each other in relational, spiritual, emotional, and sexually intimate ways. Blessing each other, satisfying each other. This is not a small thing. It's actually a really big deal in our Bibles. Look look at verses 5 to 6. Paul says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then he says this, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. There's a lot of debate as to what that phrase, now as a concession, not a command, means. Does that phrase refer back to what Paul has just stated about not depriving each other, or should it have a colon after it that indicates a concession from Paul about what he is about to say? I think pretty strongly that it refers back to what Paul just said and should be included in that previous paragraph. He just said, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, that word perhaps kind of speaks of a concession, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you might devote yourselves to prayer. That seems to be the concession that Paul is making. In the context, he's, he's, he's patiently obliging the, the hyper-spirituality of some of these Corinthians who think that it is more godly to abstain from sex even within marriage, particularly for spiritual reasons like, well, we're just going to go and pray more. Paul's basically saying, all right, fine, go ahead. You can abstain if you want and, and feel more spiritual about yourself. Go and do your praying thing but then come back together again because this is a good gift and God wants to protect you through it and bless you through it. Paul is pro-marriage. Paul is pro-intimacy. He is hesitant to even allow depriving one another even for spiritual reasons. Paul is saying, enjoy and pursue the gift that God has given to you. And so brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge and believe together that sex within marriage is a happy gift from God that should be greatly enjoyed by his people. It should be celebrated. It should be joyfully pursued. We should grow in our convictions about this and how we care and serve our spouses, and we should make it a point of regular prayer and of humble obedience before God. Friends, there are so many things that we could continue to say and cautions that we could give in this topic. First of all, it's it is clear in this text that there is a godly protection from sexual sin that we gain through marital intimacy. It's not only pragmatic, but there is a pragmatic nature to it. Even the the mutual authority that is spoken of in verses three to four, that seems to speak about accountability as well. The, The wife should hold her husband accountable to sexual purity. The husband should hold his wife accountable to sexual purity. There's an authority and a a unity and a a joyful pursuit of purity together within the marriage covenant. Second thing, what, what if one spouse wants to do things that the other spouse is uncomfortable with or even has convictions against? Well, the, the authority that Paul speaks of here certainly does not allow any man or woman to force sex upon their spouse. Sex should never be forced, even within a marriage. And when it is, that is a big problem. This text does not allow anyone to demand sex at any time. No, intimacy is not as simple as that. There are times when we can and should be willing to abstain for the comfort and the well-being of our spouse. That's not being deprived. That's loving exercising self-control for their good. And then, while we should be willing to explore all kinds of intimacy with our spouse, we should never go 
against our conscience in these things. If you are uncomfortable about something that your spouse wants to do, that should become a matter of prayerful conversation with your spouse and maybe bringing others into that conversation as well to gain wisdom. But no one should go against their conscience in any way in order to serve their husband or their wife. And sometimes setting up Setting up specific times outside of the moment of intimacy to talk about these things is really helpful and healthy for a marriage. Third, what if your spouse ignores the clear teaching of Scripture and is depriving you of intimacy? What if because of past hurt or past sin or even present pride and selfishness and laziness, what if your spouse is refusing intimacy? What, what do you do then? Friends, it is important to remember that sexual intimacy is not all that a marriage is about. You and your spouse are so much more than who you are in the bedroom. We are called to be on mission together. We are called to serve one another in other ways. Our sexual experiences are not supposed to define us personally or our marriages. And so we can joyfully and humbly and prayerfully pursue relationships with our spouse even without intimacy being the priority at times. And we should do all of that, not as a way to ultimately get what we want in the bed, but because we simply love them and are partnered to them. But listen, we can also pray earnestly that God would restore this area of joy in our marriage as well, and we can also seek counsel from others to help as well, obviously in a careful and guarded way. The the re-engage course, which we have been running at Redeemer Fellowship for different couples, is a great way to walk through some of these things together. Fourth, what about those who are just living in disappointment? Their desires have not been met. Friend, if that is you, please remember that you also are secure in Christ. Your identity is in him, not in the level of intimacy that you enjoy with your husband or wife. Seek to find your joy, seek to find your peace in him, the great groom, the great the one who has married you to himself through the gospel. Even as you pray for him to bless you in this area, remind you that you are joined to Christ Jesus. And always remember that sexual intimacy does not define you and that you have a Savior who draws near to you and loves you and who can sustain you through even years of pain and sorrow. Find your security in him and at times with wisdom and care, seek help. Fifth, what if you have fallen into sin? What if you have failed in what Paul is speaking to married couples in this text? Or what if you have gone outside of the marriage covenant to find your satisfaction? Friend, Christ wants to extend his grace to you this morning. If that is an area that you have kept hidden for some time, he invites you to bring it to his feet, to confess it to him openly, and to ask for his forgiveness. Our God is abounding in steadfast love and kindness, and he will meet you in that humility, and he will restore you to himself and to your spouse, and he will give you the courage needed to walk down a road of repentance. There's great joy for you ahead. Your mistakes do not define your future. God desires to work mightily in you and in your marriage. Friends, sex within marriage is a happy gift from God that should be greatly enjoyed by his people. That doesn't always happen easily. 
But may we pray for our marriages and for all the marriages in our church. May God give us grace to love each other well and to endure even through hard seasons of marriage as we care for and serve each other well for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray.